start this. Today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 37 and see a number of things about the development of Jacob's lineage within Israel and Joseph's position and all of that. Last time we closed the chapter on Esau, we had a chance to see that out of Esau, uh, there were many chiefs. They were the, he was the patriarch of Edom. He said he's the father of the Edomites. We also recognize that uh, though God gave him the land of the Edomites uh, and set him up there and even protected that for him, he was still greatly cursed by God throughout the whole scriptures. And we took a moment and recognized that the Herods came out of uh, Esau's lineage as well and they were they were very evil men and God actually used their evil intents to see his purposes done with the birth and ministry of Christ including up through his resurrection or his crucifixion and resurrection which that reminds me next week don't forget uh, no Sunday school uh, and so uh, we saw, verse 36, 1 started, Now these are the records of the generations of Esau. So that was what we took a look at last time. Today we launch off into a little bit different direction. Uh, we're going to look at the whole chapter, but let's start out by reading verses 1 through 18. And I would certainly desire a, a volunteer to read, a, read for us chapter 37, verses 1 through 18. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bila and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than the, any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him now Joseph had a dream and what when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more he said to them hear this dream that I have dreamed Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf rose, arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Keep going. Yeah, I want to go through eight through seventeen. Thanks. Uh, then he dreamed <coughs> another dream and told it to his brothers and said, "Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bearing, bowing down to me." <coughs> but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, "What is this dream that you have dreamed?" Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down, to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept, say, kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and said, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. All right. <clears throat> so from this begins to focus 
a bit on Joseph, but the chapter starts out in the first word. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. And that's interesting when we look at it. What does that word sojourned mean? Do you, has anybody looked at that? Any nuances there you might bring up? So when I read it, I thought, well, that means he traveled there, which is true. He did travel there. But that word sojourned also contains with it uh, a bit of sense of temporary lodging. It, you, you could almost, in our English, we might say he camped his way all through the land. He was, he was nomadic, and his, he, 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 his settling down was limited. Uh, it's not to say at times he didn't have homes and structures, but he kept moving and kept living in a somewhat temporary way throughout, throughout the land. And, of course, where was his father? That was Isaac. Isaac did some moving around. We even saw where he kept moving because well, there isn't enough space here. He kept, he kept waiting until he found a peaceful place to kind of stay a little longer. And so, uh, but this is, this is where the Jacob had sojourned, I mean, where his father had sojourned. And then in verse 2, we see, oh, wait a minute, I want to back up. Let's go to Genesis 13, 14 through 18. I've got three passages I want to remind ourselves of with regard to J Abraham and uh Isaac and Jacob and so on. Genesis 13, 14 through 18. Let's start with that one. The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham, Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Okay, so what did God tell Abraham? Going to give him the land. Look up, if you can see it, it's yours. And by the way, don't just see it from one spot. Travel it. Explore it. See what's there. See what I've given to you. And by the way, not just to you, to who else? To your offspring. And so, um, I'm going to skip over Isaac. Let's go down to a similar conversation that God had with Jacob. Genesis 28, verses 13 and 14. This is in the middle of Jacob's dream encounter. God gives some words to Jacob. Somebody read Genesis 28, 13, and 14. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give you and to your offspring. Your offspring, offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread them abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Okay, so Jacob gets similar words, doesn't he? North, south, east, and west, it's going to be yours. And we'll go to your offspring. There's another thing about the offspring that's said in both of these, and what's that? Forever. Forever, and? Be very many. Be very many. Multitude. Big set of offsprings. So let's, now when we get to chapter 37, I have a question for you. So that was a promise to Abraham. Did Abraham have dominion over all the land? No. Isaac? No. No, Isaac even had to keep moving until he could make peace with the powers that be in those lands at time. At least he chose to do it that way. Let's go over to Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. Put that promise in perspective because we already know, we've studied this enough, we've been through the story of Joseph many times as children and as adults. Is By the time we get to the end of Genesis, are we going to see these promises fulfilled where they've got lots of people and they have totally taken over the 
the promised land? No. So let's look at Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things they things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who, who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So, what does the book of Hebrews say about these promises? Did Abraham see the promises fulfilled as he was alive? No. No. Isaac? No. No. Jacob? No. And yet, what does the book of Hebrews say about their receiving of those promises, about their thoughts about the promises? Well, by faith. I mean, they did live it out by faith. They trusted God for the promises. Um, Any descendants? They desired a heavenly country. They desired a heavenly country. Verse 16 really gets at the truth here. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And God is therefore not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared for, he has prepared a city for them. So here, here are this great promise that you see laid out in the early, I say early, he was 75 when he left, but in the younger life of Abram, and you see this promise transferred down, and you see we're, now we're getting into uh, the, the, the culmination of this book in what happens in Jacob's family through Joseph, and those promises are never fulfilled in the way that you might expect them to be and yet they were not unhappy with that they were pleased with that because in living by faith they saw even a better fulfillment than the one God had offered to them and were quite pleased to give that its time to be fulfilled where they would not see it in this first life so here we go with Uh, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned and traveled, the land of Canaan, the promised land. In verse 2, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. If you remember back to the first verse in the previous chapter, these are the records of the generations of of, uh, Esau. And we we kind of close out Esau in, as far as Genesis is concerned, in chapter 36. Here in chapter 37 and through the rest of the book, we're going to close out. Jacob's time and his people as they live out their lives in the book of Genesis. And so that's where we are. Now it says there that uh, in the last part of verse 2, Joseph being age 17, it's been 11 years since leaving Laban. Joseph was six years old when they left Laban. Joseph was born at the beginning of that last six years that Jacob worked after he had paid, met the deal that he made with Laban regarding working for him in in response for receiving initially uh, Rachel, but then Leah got added in. And so he had 17 years to work for him as a result of taking his two daughters as his wife, wives, and then six more as Laban made another deal with him Uh, But Joseph was born at the beginning of that other six years. We can also go back to the calculations we did before and see that Jacob is now 115 years old. And um, so as we continue there in verse 2, he was pasturing the flock with his brothers while still a youth. So at 17, he wasn't considered 
one of the man children yet. He's still one of the boy children. And uh, he's there also with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah, his father's wives. These were the maids of the two women that he initially married that were given to him to produce offspring, and so they became wives as well. Now, Joseph does something after this pasturing time is up, he, or at least during the pasturing. He brings back a bad report about them to his father. What descriptive name do we give to particularly younger siblings that come back and inform parents about what's going on? Tattletales. Um, and so here's Joseph fits that role very well. He brings back a bad report to, about them to their father. Now we get the context here in verse 3. Uh, it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age. So is Joseph helping out, I'm sorry, is Jacob helping out Joseph in his relationship with his brothers? Now, having been a parent, the standard line is we have no favorites, right? But sometimes is one child a little easier than the other one? <laughs> and aren't there moments when you go, oh, I'm glad that's my child? And don't you have moments maybe with maybe the other one or two or where you go, well, I guess I'm glad that they're my child. Uh, those things happen, don't they? You, you, you go through periods where last year this kid's been a real difficult kid. But this kid's been really easy. Um, Yesterday, we were at a shower for my son and his wife. Their first child's on the way, and somebody was talking about colic, and I made a true statement that if Jennifer had been born first, that would have decreased the probability we would have decided to have more children because she was so colicky those first few months. It was very difficult. So you have times, at least, if not outright favorites on occasion, but as a parent, can you let that be known? Not even to your friends, can you? You can't say I have a favorite because you just set things up for trouble. And of course, Jacob was real subtle about it. He made him a what? Yeah, he got him a multicolored coat and didn't get anybody else one. You know, I've, I've seen it even with teenage kids. You buy a little trinket for one. The rest of them are looking around going, where's mine? So you know how that goes. And um, it says he was the son of his old age. Now, I don't know if any of you have had an opportunity to see this firsthand, but I have. My mother's parents had three daughters and then had a son born much later in life. And, and this just talks to me when I see that because uh, my grandfather and that late-born son uh, just were inseparable. They were best buddies. They did everything together. Now, the good news for everybody was he was the only son. So we didn't get into this favorite son or more favored son as compared to the other sons. And he had another thing going for him, those three older daughters. The youngest was eight when he was born, I think maybe nine. The other three were all bunched right together, but, you know, nine years later. And uh, those girls just thought he was just the best thing that ever came along. So there, we didn't have this jealousy thing. At least if they did, none of those daughters will admit it. And they're all still alive today to, do, to, to admit it. Um, and fortunately, he died very young, died as a teenager. But here is Joseph, and he's, he's this favored child. This is my buddy. He's the, the, the child, the son of his, that's the young one that he's really just taken to. <clears throat> And so Joseph is set up. Uh, he's got this inroads with his dad, and he is using it to be a tattletale at least at one point in time. And dad has given him this very colored coat, which, by the way, uh, one of the things that uh, can go along with a decorated or very colored coat like that is probably with something like a long sleeve robe or maybe an ornamented tunic. Those would both fit. But they tend to make the one, 
when, when you give one to just one family member in the Middle East in that era, that tended to mark that one as the one that had been chosen to lead the family. So that didn't really help very well. Normally this would be the firstborn, but Joseph is one of the later born. And so in verse 4, the brothers were seeing, they saw it. It's bad enough it existed, but they saw it, and how could they not? And saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers. And so what was their natural reaction? They hated him. To the point, they couldn't even fake it. They could not speak to him on friendly terms. I mean... You've seen jealous kids, but generally they realize in front of the parents, we've got to be good. But they just couldn't do it. And now God moves these kinds of things along a little bit. Joseph has a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. What was the dream? And of course, as he's telling, he says, please listen there in verse, verse 6. I got an important dream. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And so you're probably familiar with that. Even, even for those of us that haven't seen binding of sheaves in the field, every time we tell the story of Joseph, we explain what it is. They would generally go through and cut down, like if you were, cut, if you were harvesting wheat, you would go cut it all, and then you'd go back and wrap it up in bind it up in groups so that you could come through with the harvesting. It just made it easier to move around and they weren't jostled so much so you wouldn't lose all the, the, the wheat seed off of it. And it was just a common method used even in, in later times up until the combine was truly prolific. They would bind it up in sheaves. As a matter of fact, for some of you guys that have been around a while, what do you call a truck made by International? It's a binder. Why? Well, International, through the McCormick Company, was one of the first, was the most successful, maybe, early binder that would go through the field to help you mechanically do this binding. But anyway, so we bound all these sheaves up, and then my sheaf, because we always get these pictures of these sheaves, you know, up into kind of a teepee shape in the field, you know. Well, that isn't necessarily how it was. A lot of times they would leave them lying or, or something until... They would go back and gather them. Usually they wanted to gather them very quickly because they didn't want that seed falling off. That's the whole idea is to harvest the seed. But he says, mine stood up erect like he did it on its own. And behold, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to my sheep. They don't have any trouble understanding the message. What's the message? He's going to rule over his brother. Yeah, mine... I'm, I'm going to be more important than you are in some fashion. And so that all happens. And though, so the brothers said to him, well, let's back up. Why do you suppose, Joseph, now we're, we're over in that trying to understand what's going on, but why do you suppose he told them his dream? I'm tired of being picked on. Well, he might have been tired of being picked on. There's really a couple possibilities here that come to my mind very quickly, and there might be a dozen possibilities. But one is, maybe Joseph had gotten in the habit of and enjoyed needling his brothers. You know? Have you ever had... Well, no, younger kids don't normally do that to older kids, do they? Well, anyway. Um, so maybe he had gotten in that habit. Maybe he just was one of those people that just blurts out everything that happens to them and don't give much thought to how it's going to affect anybody else and their thoughts. And there's probably another half a dozen explanations. But we get his brother's reaction in verse 8. Are you actually going to reign over us? It's like, grow up. This isn't going to happen. Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more. Haughty kid thinks he's something when he's nothing and they hated him for his dreams and for his words they knew he didn't even if he had that dream and he did it's right here in the scriptures but they might have doubted it even if he had that dream he didn't have to come rub our nose in it and verse 9 joseph has even another dream and he tells his brothers again and he said lo i still had another dream you know he wasn't altering his behavior based on the response from the first dream, is he? 
Um, and behold, the sun and the moon and, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. What's significant about eleven stars? Eleven brothers. Make it very clear. We're talking about you. Uh, and he related this as well to his father and his brothers. How does his father respond there in, uh, what verse are we in, 10? How does his father respond? Why did Jacob rebuke him for telling this dream? We get a little bit of a hint there. <clears throat> Yeah, he's got the parents bowing down as well. And he says, shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow down ourselves before you on the ground? And so he, he's rebuking him. He's probably also reminding him that your brothers don't like this very much. This is not wise interactive behavior. You're not, you're not setting the family up for peace and tranquility. There is a thing in there we have to talk about. The son is Jacob, right? His father, or Israel, whatever name you want to use. It gets used interchangeably even through the rest of the book, through this chapter. Who's the moon? His mother. Who's his mother? Rachel. Is Rachel alive? No. no. And we know she's not alive because there are 11 brothers. It isn't that this story is just told before she dies. So Rachel is not living. So when Jacob says, shall I and your mother bow down, what are we talking about? Would you like to offer a thought? Your thoughts will be as good as anybody's. Everybody's guessing to a point. Um, we might say it's Leah. Leah could very well be alive yet, but... She's not on the scene by the time the family does go to Egypt and bow down before him. How about the handmaid wives? Could be Joseph or Jacob may be thinking of his wife or whoever would be his wife. Um, one of the commentaries that I read went, I, I just caution you about commentaries. Um, there are some of them that believe that there are multiple authors contributing here, and boy, they make a mess of the book of Genesis. They had some answers I won't even tell you about, but uh, in general, it's completeness. It's the family. Whoever the family is, um, they're going to be bowing down to Joseph. Is that not true? And so in the dream, is it a specific person? I mean, when we say mother, that is... Jacob's understanding of the dream. That's not necessarily, and I'll be careful there because I, I think likely what Jacob said is probably in general the right idea. You've got in any family, if you've got a husband and a wife both living, that's the complete headship of the family, right? And so in general, you've got the headship of the family plus the brothers are going to be bowing down. But... Um, you know, that's just, we don't have an exact um, representation given to us in the scripture, so it's, it's something along those lines. And so, verse 11, <clears throat> we see the expected response. His brothers were jealous of him. It increased. Um, but interestingly enough, even though he rebuked him, his father kept the saying in mind. He thought about it. Um, why would that be potentially that, that Jacob would be more receptive? Why later on he might go, oh, no, wait a minute. I need to think about this some more. And he kept it in his mind. Why might that be? <clears throat> Did dreams play a, play a role in Jacob's life? You know, the ones that we would come to quickest that seem to be somewhat dreamlike would be his experience when he sees the ladder as he's leaving. Was that a dream or was that real? Sounded pretty real. I don't know that it's fair to say that's just limited to being a dream. We also see on his way home that he wrestled with God, right? Was that a dream? 
Ooh, there was more than a dream in that. He wound up lame as a result. But let's go over to Genesis 31, verses 10 through 13. Genesis 31, 10 through 13. Now this is Jacob going to his two <coughs> chosen wives. That's not even quite true, but Rachel and Leah. And he takes them out in the field so they can have a private conversation without any concern of somebody else getting involved. And in the course of doing that, he's telling them that God is calling him home and giving them some information about what it's been like living under Laban. And these verses I've cherry-picked out of there. Genesis 31, 10 through 13. Somebody read that for us. <clears throat> and it came about at that time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goods which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. So this is a time when Jacob is telling after the fact his wives, Rachel and Leah, about a dream. And in this dream, he gets clear information from God about what's going on with growing his flock and that God is responsible, but also a comment from God about what he is to do. And so it's a little more understandable that Jacob might hesitate a minute and go, wait a minute, dreams have played a role. We don't know that this was the only, I mean, there may be other dreams that he didn't tell about, but at least at this time, there was a dream that played a significant role in his uh, interaction with God and the way God was taking care of him. So we can see where Jacob might have been a little more willing to consider what does this dream mean. And also, he was, he was part of a dream. Yeah. Because he came before Esau. I mean, the younger brother served the... Through yeah, the was that was that? I don't. Re yeah, I don't remember talk to how that was communicated to right to. Uh, it wasn't a dream to Rebecca that you know there's two nations in you and the younger will serve will rule over the old older. But yeah, probably true. This is real clear. This is a dream. Jacob says so, and that's that's what it was. And there may be others that are in there that I didn't go looking to see if this was the only case where it was written that way. So Jacob gives it more consideration. He kept it in mind. He thought about it. Verse 12, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. So apparently Joseph is young enough or has status in the house such that he doesn't always get sent out for the pasturing. But Israel said to Joseph in verse 13, Are your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph responds with, sure, I will go. And so his dad says, go now. Check on their welfare and the welfare of the flock and report back to me. Let's try out this tattletailing again. No, not necessarily would it be negative, but he wants to report back. Are they, are they doing fine? Is everything being taken care of? So he went down through the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. This is about 50 miles from Hebron. Hebron, and he gets there and apparently can't find them because in verse 15, a man finds Joseph wandering out in the field and asks him, what are you looking for? And Joseph says, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they're pasturing the flock. Now, remember this, they had huge flocks. Did they have the whole flock there? We don't know, but their holdings were huge. There was enough of a holdings between <clears throat> Jacob and Esau, they couldn't even both stay in the land of Canaan. So they would be noticed as they moved around through the pasturing lands. Probably open pasturing areas. I'm not sure how that worked, but probably was. And uh, he said they moved on. And he said, I overheard them talking about going to Dothan. So Dothan, 
uh, it becomes Joseph's destination in verse 17. By the way, that's northern Samaria. So we start out going north out of Hebron while I stop in Shechem. And then we go north again about another 13 or 14 <clears throat> miles to find uh, Dothan. Dothan <clears throat> happens to be on an Ishmaelite trading route that runs east from the east of Jordan over into the land of Canaan and then turns south after it goes through Dothan a ways and is actually on its way to Egypt. So this is a trading route that the Ishmaelite people were using to do trade with Egypt. And so he finds him there. Let's pick up the story. Let's read 18 through the end of the chapter. Who would do that for us? Who's got that? They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard him, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might, res that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on the way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they set the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he, and he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned his son for many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the, capital of the, the captain of the guard. Okay, thank you. So... Here's Joseph headed toward Dothan, and they're going to be meeting up. It's obvious he's headed their way, and they see him off in the distance. And it didn't take very long for them to let their hate turn into a plan. Verse 19, they said to one another, Oh, here comes that dreamer. And that was not something that would encourage them to good responses to their brother. They were jealous. They were mad. They didn't like him. Verse 20, so let's kill him. We'll kill him, we'll throw him in a pit, and we'll say a beast ate him. Then we can see how his dreams work out. Well, Reuben heard this talk and set in his mind a plan to rescue him from the brothers. To start with, he said, let's not kill him, and that part works. Let's shed no blood. Let's throw him into this wilderness pit, but lay no hands on him. So he's suggesting just abandon him out here in a pit. But he had a plan in the back of his mind, didn't he? What was his plan? He was going to rescue him. He was going to go get him and take him back home to dad, to Israel. Both the land and the person. And so he thinks he's got things set. They'll throw him in a pit. 
Uh, by the way, these pits, they had pits in various locations. Typically, they were built cisterns or hollowed out areas in the ground that nature had done, but oftentimes these pits were used as cisterns because um, they became places you could gather to find water when, when they were in there. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of times water was too scarce and wasn't there, but um, th that's a typical pit and a typical use. There may have been other pits around. We don't know this one was a cistern, but we get a little idea that it might have been when we get a little bit later in this passage. So in verse 23, Joseph shows up. And the first thing they do, of course, is take off this special tunic. Uh, they're it's a symbol of their frustration and they threw him into the pit and it's mentioned it was empty without water so it clearly was one that whether it was a sister or not could have filled up with water in verse 25 um, how close were they to the pit we don't know but not inside of it apparently but they sit down to eat a meal so this is a little surreal to me but it tells us a little bit maybe how deep their hatred was with the exception of Reuben, they're all fine and content to go eat a meal with their brother in a pit and intended to abandon him there. But they look up while they're eating, and there's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming toward, from Gilead toward them. And they have camels bearing their load. They're taken down to Egypt, aromatic gum, balm, and myrrh. And in verse 26, Judah decides that, hey, there's another opportunity here. And so he speaks up. And his initial question that's recorded is, what good is that? What profit is, is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Now, there's a couple of ways we can take that word that gets in the New American Standard translated profit. But is he thinking about making money? Yep. Maybe. But he's thinking about more than that um, because... He gives them the idea, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites in verse 27 and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother. So there's something stirring in Judah that is a little bit along the lines of a conscience at work. Uh, he's our brother. I mean, this we're not going to gain by having his blood on our hands and then have to cover it up. But he didn't have any problem selling him as a slave. <laughs> so uh, his nobility and, or his conscience or his, what he was willing to put up in front of his brothers was a, more limited than maybe someone might have hoped. But his brothers, in the last part of verse 27, did listen to him. And that's that, when we say we're going to go listen to something, what we mean is we're going to go hear it. doesn't mean we're going to necessarily agree with it. But in the scriptures, often when you see words like this and they listen, it means they, they said, okay, yeah, we, we get you. We're with you on that. That's a good idea. Now, we have to know, we're going to see in a little while, Reuben must not have been there. He must not have felt like eating with them. But then some Midianite traders passed by, and so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they, the Ishmaelite traders, took Joseph to Egypt. Now, we change terms around here. We have Midianite traders and we have Ishmaelites. Midianite traders, but traders, but we sold them to Ishmaelites. Ishmaelites was who we saw coming, but it's the, I mean, yeah, the Midianites are the ones to mention here. What does that mean? Well, I tried to nail this down, and the more I read, the more I became convinced that John MacArthur had it right when he wrote in his notes that Midianites and Ishmaelites were somewhat interchangeable in what we're talking about here. There's some real probability they were Ishmaelites, but were Ishmaelites that lived around the area of Midian, making them both Midianites and Ishmaelites. But as I read, there are all kinds of references that go both ways with that, where they just use that word somewhat interchangeably. But nonetheless, they were Ishmaelites, maybe from the area around Midian. And these folks are going to take Joseph to Egypt. That 20 shekels of silver, I tried to put something with that that was meaningful. 
And what I finally wound up with having to say was, they believe, the people that studied these things out and worked hard to figure it out, that this was a typical price for a slave in this era. Slaves in this era mostly came from conquering lands. Um, we probably even saw some slavery begin when the brothers of Dana uh, killed the men uh, and looted the city back when she was raped and kidnapped because they wound up taking all the women and children with them. They're going to be servants of some sort in Jacob's caravan. So that may even be a time that slavery is occurring. In verse 29, Reuben intends to initiate his plan, so he goes back to the pit, and it's going to be obvious that he's not aware that they've already sold Joseph into slavery, because behold, he gets there, Joseph's not in the pit, and he tore his garments. This was distressing for him, wasn't it? And he returned to his brothers and basically challenged him. The boy's not there, so where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Because it was his intention to save all of them in one sense from this grave injustice, but also it was going to put him in a position where he could go back and be honest with his dad. And now that opportunity's gone. And he was a little bit stuck, didn't he? Because who suggested throwing him in a pit? He did. Now he had a plan in the back of his mind to use that as a way to take Joseph back. But now that that plan's foiled, he's going to look as guilty as the rest of them. And so what did they do? There's no real conversation here. They took Joseph's tunic. We don't know how. I mean, that might have been an interesting discussion with Judah and Reuben and the brothers. But what did they wind up doing? They took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood, and sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father. So they see that it gets home. And, oh, these innocent boys, we found this tunic out here. Examine it. Is this, could this be Joseph's tunic? Well, they know this was, this was egregious, but they did it. And so here's Joseph. He looks at it. He says, oh, it's my son's tunic. And comes to the conclusion he's been devoured by a wild beast. Surely he's been torn to pieces. And so he believes his son is dead. Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. This was a hard loss for Jacob. Now, verse 35. Be interesting to have been a fly on the wall to see, was this genuine? Was there real regret? Did they just not want their father to mourn? I don't know. But all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. As a matter of fact, his comment is, Surely I go down to Sheol in the morning of my son, meaning I'm going to be mourning this till the day I die. And to some level, I have absolutely no doubt that was a true statement if it wasn't for what was going to happen in re being reunited with his son later. If, that, if this had been a real death, I've watched parents lose children. They don't ever get over it. They might learn to live with it, even learn to live with it with a testimony. But they never get over it, at least in any case I've seen. So his father wept for him. In the meantime, kind of that back at the ranch thing, let's finish up that part of the story. The Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Is the captain of the bodyguard going to be a small-time player in Pharaoh's household? No. This is the guy Pharaoh trusts his life with. And that's the household that Joseph finds himself being sold into. There's a point here that I think just has to be made. Go back to verse um, 20. No, no. Verse, 20, verse 19. I'll get there. I'll find it. Uh, it's actually verse 20. I was right the first time. We will say a wild beast has devoured him. And this next statement. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. 
What is their intent here? Show that he was full of it. He was full of it. Yeah, let's shut down this talk that's coming out of these dreams. This arrogant kid that comes in here and starts talking to us about dreams, needles us with them, makes it clear that his dreams are something he's telling to show that he's going to be the king of the hill amongst his brothers. In reality, who's behind these dreams? God himself. It is really interesting to look at the times in the scriptures that people attempt to stop the things that God is going to do. And I'm, I'm going to use this as one example and then we'll talk about another. And that this example is one where whether these men are conscious of it or not, this is God's plan. Is there anything they can attempt to do to Joseph that is going to keep God's plan from being accomplished? As a matter of fact, the actions they take are the very actions that God has planned to establish Joseph as the one that will be not only leading the family but all of Egypt, and setting the stage for a prosperous time in Egypt, followed by a time of slavery, followed by the exodus to the promised land. It is through these means God is going to fulfill the first fulfillment of his prophecy to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob of having the land for themselves with many people in it. And so many times... God uses the intents and plans of men for evil to stop God so that God gets to do exactly what he planned. And not only that, they are actually executing the steps he planned to accomplish it, right? We're coming up on Easter. And at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples... One of you is going to betray me. And in the book of John, John leaves over and whispers in his ear, and if you knew how they laid around the table, you could see why that would be not difficult, and says, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm going to dip the bread in the sop and give it to him. And he gives it to Judas and tells Judas, go quickly, do what you're planning. And do you know what the scriptures say at that point? Satan entered Judas so who's really at work in Judas betrayal of Jesus for money and what does Satan want to do is he on God's team let's get this done let's do it right no he's in absolute opposition to God himself here is Satan himself attempting to derail God's plan how by playing a role in seeing that this very son of God is put to death. We don't have Satan's thoughts. We don't know what he understood, what he expected. But I'm pretty confident that he did not willingly play into a crucifixion followed by a resurrection to redeem all men from their sin and to glorify God in the process. And so when we look around and see the after the fact, words that were given in the scriptures. Men try to change what God has planned. And unless God is the one that, that has that part of his plan, they will not be successful. The very acts they do many times actually help the plan along its way. And God intended that from the beginning, whether they wanted to help or not. Even to the point that as we're leading up to the time of the cross, the man who had been appointed high priest at that time made a prophecy in favor of Jesus. It's better for one to die than for all to die. And so one dies for the many, to save the many. And he certainly was not trying to prophesy that Jesus would be the Christ, the adequate sacrifice, the substitutionary death 
for men who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. He had no faith in God himself. We know that because of the fruit of his life. And so I just find it interesting that here we see these men. This whole story is about jealous brothers full of hate taking action out of their hate because they don't like the dream that Joseph had, not maybe realizing that that was from God, or maybe they did, don't know, but they wanted to put this dreamer to an end, and instead they put him right where he needed to be. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes? Well, these brothers are doing this to Joseph. There's nothing about him trying to fight back or yell or scream or anything. Yeah, there's... Did possibly God or whatever to well, you know, we really don't know. We don't know how difficult it was. Um, not long ago, I had to put a cat in a cat carrier. <laughs> That's an experience that might illustrate somebody fighting back. Claws everywhere. Grabbed a hold of everything on the way in, but we, we overpowered the cat. Maybe that was the way it worked with Joseph. I don't know. Oh yeah, 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 it, and we don't know. They might have ate some distance away so they could quit hear him screaming. I mean, it just really just isn't told to us how those interactions occurred. Um, and 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 I, I I think we can fairly say that we tend to think about these things in the struggles between men and women or whatever. You know, we we look at this in human terms. But God gave us what we needed. He gave us, this is the men, out of their hate they did this, put Joseph in here. Did they fight? You know, did they have words? Did they plead? Did they whatever? Who knows? It just isn't given to us, but it's very clear that these men were acting out of hate. Meant evil for Joseph. And apparently, none of them ever reached a point where they said, you know, Dad, Joseph's really alive. Somewhere we don't know because we sold him into slavery. I mean, doesn't look like they ever had any kind of remorse to the point they fessed up. So their hatred stayed alive for many years. The more years. and more, the more they hated his brother. Yep. Yeah, that brother was trouble for them. And. It may have, and I'm, I may just not have that detail in my head. Chapter 42, 1. Uh, verse 21. 21. We saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. So, yeah, it looked like they had a pretty good picture of it. So, thank you. I just didn't have that verse in my head. So... Good. Anything else? I think it's, I think it's um, kind of where the boys deceive her by dipping in fruit and blood, the goat and the blood of the goat. Mm -hmm. But then yet, Jacob did it, or Jacob and his mom did the same thing with the skin <laughs> disease in the body. You know, it's an interesting thing. I sin a lot. Wish I didn't, but I did. And it's amazing how we sinners start feeling so innocent when somebody sins against us. And we become outraged. Like they're weird, they're, they're evil, they're ugly, and they are. But so am I. So why wouldn't I expect people around me to occasionally sin against me? But yeah, no, you're right. Deception's all over. Uh, some of these recent stories, stories, events that we've talked about. I mean, deception was involved when they killed the men of the city after Dana's capture and abuse. Every time, the two times that Abraham got concerned about his life because of his beautiful wife, he tried deception. When God was right there knocking on those guys' doors, figuratively, and saying, don't touch her. Um, so, or in another way, it was revealed too. But nonetheless, yeah, it, it's amazing. We, we're, we're sinners, and yet we expect people around us to not be. 
Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, you exercising your sovereignty so that even the evil in men's hearts can be turned to you accomplishing your will, keeping your word, keeping your promises, loving us, and even redeeming us. Uh, Lord, we're a ways away from it in the book of Genesis yet, but Lord, we can look forward and quickly see that through their hatred, they set their brother up to be their earthly redeemer from starvation. Uh, Lord, uh, let us realize that you have been at work in our lives and through history before we got here and as we live our lives now, that you are desiring to redeem us through Jesus the Christ, and we're so thankful for it. And it's through his name we pray. Amen.